Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Once again, the epistle to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hebrews 1, 1 through 11, once again, God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let us pray. So we all come to those times when you need a break. That is, you are feeling like butter scraped over too much bread. Your tank is empty, your feet are dragging, and we can feel this way simply after a long day, or a stressful week, an ardent season, or an extensive career. And when you're feeling worn down, we ache for a time of respite. Now, this could be as simply as hitting quitting time and then catching your favorite show on a Wednesday night. Or it could be a nice date on the weekend or a grand vacation in Italy for three weeks. In fact, much of our lives are us waiting for times off. We work for the weekend. We save and skimp for a family get-together. We splurge on a spa day. The light at the end of the tunnel is a powerful motivator to keep us going. Rest and respite is the carrot that moves us across the finish line. And so Hebrews lays before us the glorious retirement of God to keep us pressing on in the faith. So the author of this fine epistle drew up for us an analogy. He said that our present Christian lives in Christ are similar in many ways to the wilderness generation of Israel. Our faith and our Savior is a trek through the arid, this arid world. We're pilgrimaging from redemption to the promised land of the Lord. And just as Israel encountered many hardships and hazards, so we too face a multitude of temptations and snares. Thus, quoting from Psalm 95, we were solemnly warned against falling away from the living God, and we were called to be faithful. 
we must cling to that first reality of Jesus Christ by faith until the end. Well, the author is only halfway through this topic. Psalm 95, the wilderness and rest, is still the issue that is before us. Thus, after listing three negative examples of the Israelites for us at the end of chapter 3, another exhortation is published for us here in verse 1. Those ancient Hebrews witnessed all the unbounded wonders of the Lord, and yet they still rebelled, sinned, and disobeyed with an evil and unbelieving heart. Therefore, we too should fear. Yes, we are called here to fear. Now, as you're aware, the fear of the Lord is a weighty concept. It includes venerating the Lord and worshiping. It embraces humility and trust and walking before the Lord in obedience. Yet, the fear, or the fear of the Lord is kind of like a Dagwood sandwich. It's piled high with many layers. Yet, one layer is always present, and that is the respect and dread of God's judgment. Fear takes oh so seriously that the Lord will surely punish disobedience. His threats are not empty, but they, but, but they will be poured out upon rebels. And this is the main note struck here. The wild generation of Israel revolted and tasted of God's sworn wrath, and so we should shudder at the same judgment in store for those who mutiny in wickedness. To fall away from Christ is to stumble into the hands of the living God. Hence, he tells us to fear in order to prevent anyone from falling short. And this word for falling or failing to reach it is the same one we hear in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all should fear so that no one may fall short. This fear is the antibiotic against apostasy. So what precisely are we cautioned to not fall short of? We are to fear so that we do not miss out on the still standing promise of rest. And two things, key things, surface in this phrase. First, God has promised rest as the goal of our salvation. Now, rest links back to Psalm 95, which pointed to the paradise promised land of old. Entering God's rest, his land flowing with blessing and favor, is his promise held out to his people. Rest is the target which us saints are aimed at. Secondly, this promise still stands for us. It remains true and the true and living goal for us even in these latter days. Now, since Psalm 95 and the history of the wilderness generation colors rest as the land of Canaan, our first impression might be to think that such a promise is an artifact of history. It's a long-lost treasure. It was for Israel, but what do we have to do with it? But this is not the case. The promise of rest is just as much for us as it was for them. It's an essential part of our salvation. Though how do we enter this rest? And what trips us up so that we might fall short? Well, the promise comes to us through the gospel 
and is inherited through faith. As he says, we too were evangelized just as they were. This is another similarity that we have with the wild generation. Both them and us have had the gospel preached in our hearing. Now, sure, the accent of Moses' preaching may have been types and shadows, but it was nonetheless gospel preaching. This then makes the promise of entering God's rest part of the fabric of the gospel. The Lord's rest is not some boutique tangent of theology. No, it lies within the heart of the gospel. Yet all this gospel proclamation of rest did Israel of old no good because they listened not with faith. They didn't attain God's rest for they didn't heed the gospel in belief. Particularly, this verse says that they were not joined by faith with those who heard. There's a corporate nuance to faith here. Those who were judged didn't join those who believed. That is namely Joshua and Caleb. The hearing in belief of Caleb and Joshua was not emulated or participated in by the other rebels. You see, positive examples of belief encourage us to do the same and further condemn us if we ignore them. Once again, we see that we need the fellowship of the saints in our spiritual lives. From the hearing of the gospel to rightly holding on to it until the end. Yet the emphasis still falls on the necessity of faith. We must believe in the gospel of God's rest. If we do not combine our hearing with faith, then the salvation of Christ remains outside of us and is no benefit to us. But for those who do believe, we are entering God's rest. Faith makes rest our future destiny and our present deposit of this coming respite, which reveals that God's promise did not fail. You see, with the wilderness generation decaying in the desert, some may think that God's promise did not succeed. He didn't keep his word to bring them into his rest. Though nothing could be farther from the truth, as the Lord's promises are never broken. Just because some did not attain to the promises doesn't invalidate the promise. Unbelief may exclude some people, but the promise of the Almighty stands enduring forever. Yet this raises a question about what exactly is the rest of God. Now, in the Exodus, the rest was a very concrete thing. It meant entering the land of Canaan and taking possession of it. Rest in the promised land also included defeating all their enemies, the establishment of the temple, and the rich blessings of herds and children. But is this the same rest that we hope for? Are we called to go take the land of Palestine by force? Well, the author clarifies the definition of God's rest. The wilderness generation did not enter the rest, but God's rest started way back at creation. The Lord's labors were finished at the foundation of the world. Or more precisely, on day 7 of Genesis 2, God rested from all his works. The rest of our God 
began at the very beginning. And this pattern of working and then resting was modeled by God for us to emulate. This then makes God's rest an everlasting thing. It's a heavenly reality. For surely God didn't take his siesta in the real estate of Canaan. No, he labored by the power of his word to create from his throne, and then he rested in heaven. This forms a picture versus a reality dynamic. True rest lays in heaven, which began on day seven, and extends unceasingly into the unending future. While the rest of the real estate of the land of Canaan is but an earthly type and foreshadowing of the higher heavenly retirement. You see, some in the broader Christian church like to say that God's promise must be literal and concrete. He promised the land of Canaan, so the physical acreage of Palestine must fulfill that promise. Hebrews, though, flips this on his head. He says the heavenly rest of day seven was always the reality, so that the earthly promised land was figurative from the very start. And the author further supports this truth by some fairly simple facts of history. God's rest continues because he appointed a today that David wrote about. Now here again he quotes Psalm 95 and dates it to the time of David. Thus David, in his own generation, offered the people of God to enter God's rest today as long as it's a today. This means that over two centuries after Moses offered up Israel rest, David again holds it out for them. Both Moses and David preached the same rest, but the historical setting couldn't be more different. Moses dangled his, this rest while Israel was in the desert before they'd even seen the promised land. David, though, promised the rest after he conquered the land and brought the ark to Jerusalem. Under Moses, Israel was not in the land. Under David, Israel possessed the land, was free of foes, and the sanctuary was centered in Zion. If rest was merely the land, then David, David's offer would have been meaningless as they already had the land. And as you know, you can't offer something to someone that they presently own. This is like promising a turtle the shell in which it lives. This means that the rest offered to David cannot be the land of Israel as they were already in possession of it. It has to be something else. This is also demonstrated by Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. Again, it's irrefutable history that Joshua brought the Israelites into the promised land. Under the leadership of Joshua, the walls of Jericho tumbled, the Canaanites were devoted to destruction, and the promised land became the property of Israel. In fact, in the book of Joshua, it says several times that the Lord gave them rest from enemies and war. Israel got the land, but the Lord's rest was still set before them as something to enter. If Joshua made Israel cross the finish line, then God would not have spoken of another finish line. 
the facts of history then, the dates of history then, make clear that the land of Canaan is not God's rest. It may be a picture of the rest. It was a sign and seal of the rest, but it was not God's heavenly rest. Therefore, since the land is not the Lord's rest, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. Verse 9. The promise of rest was not limited to Israel of the Old Testament, nor to the wilderness generation, but this Sabbath rest still stands for all of God's people, even you and I today. And yet, what, what does the author mean by this Sabbath rest? Well, this word for Sabbath rest is rather unique, as this is the first occurrence in, uh, of this word in extant literature. In fact, the author may have coined this word, that is, he made it up. Yet the phraseology of verse 9 is obviously in parallel to that of verse 6. That is, the Sabbath rest is the same as the promise to enter God's rest, which was heavenly, everlasting, and primarily a future hope. Indeed, there's nothing in the text here that clearly or obviously refers to earthly Sabbath keeping. Now, sure, the Old Testament practice of keeping Sabbath pointed them to their eternal Sabbath, as well as our Lord's Day of the New Covenant surely fulfills the Old Testament Sabbath. And on the Lord's Day, we rest first in Christ as a sign and seal of that heavenly rest. Nevertheless, the weekly pattern of Sabbath or Lord's Day seems to be of no interest to the author at this point. So then why then clarify the rest as being Sabbath rest? Well, because of verse 10. If one enters God's rest, then they rest from their works just as God did on the seventh day. To work... And then rest follows the pattern of God, and it's about divine imitation. You see, the author defines our rest as sabbatical in order to underscore that we emulate God. You see, at the heart of the Sabbath pattern and symbolism arising from Genesis 2 is about imaging God towards the future. Pumping through the veins of the Sabbath is hope. It's a longing and striving at a better future. That is, you sweat and toil during the week in order to put your feet up on the weekend stress-free. This is what God did with his effort to fashion this majestic creation and then take a day off. Thus, the Lord gave the Sabbath pattern to Adam and all of God's people in him to follow. In this regard, the imagery of the Lord's Day doesn't exactly fit here. In the Lord's Day pattern, we rest in Christ first and then go forth to work. But the Sabbath scheme is the opposite. We work first and then rest. Hence, our deeds here are not works for salvation. This is not asserting that obedience merits heavenly rest. No, not at all. Rather, works here describes the fruits of obedience flowing from true faith that should characterize our Christian lives. Indeed, Sabbath rest is the sweet dessert 
that's meant to keep us going. With such a royal rest before us, we're able to persevere through the toil of our good deeds. Thus, the author closes off this parable or paragraph with another exhortation. He says, strive to enter that rest. Seek with passion the promised heavenly rest that lies above, so that none of you fail by the same disobedience of the wilderness generation. As he stated in verse 1, the author's purpose is to ensure that no one spiritually fails or falls short of this rest. The burden of the author's heart is that none of us apostatize, just as the Israelites in the desert rebelled with dire eternal consequences. Therefore, he sets the Sabbath pattern of God before us and summons us to follow the Lord with zeal. For presently, it is the hot summer of toil and labor in our pilgrimage. The weeds are many, the heat is sweltering, and the bug bites itch terribly so. And yet the promise of God's eternal weekend is still ours. The gospel offer of eternal rest is valid today as long as it's called today. And we enter this rest by faith alone in Christ alone. So thus we must hold on to Jesus in faith so that an unbelieving and evil heart doesn't creep up in us. So then this promise and call to enter God's rest is the Lord's carrot to keep us faithful. In chapter 3, Hebrews exhorted us to faithfulness by the sober warnings of falling away. Israel's favor and God's wrath were the rod of God's love to move us to be faithful. But this everlasting Sabbath retirement of God is the carrot of joy set before us to stir up our faith. For as you know, this side of heaven, we require both sticks and carrots to keep us motivated. Bad consequences keep us from entertaining evil, while delicious destinies preserve preserve us on the straight and narrow path. And the rest of God is the most powerful goal to fuel our faith and hope. For remember, what are the contours of the promised rest before us. Well, again, the Old Testament types display its glory in technicolor. As foreshadowed by the land flowing with milk and honey, your heavenly Father's rest is eternal life for you, free from all sin, evil, death, and enemies. This retirement is God dwelling with us and us living by the light of his face. In glory, Pain will be no more, and struggle will become extinct. Weariness and stress will be totally absent. In the present, our existence now as pilgrims is one of toilsome labor and torturous hardships. The world hates and shames us in the gospel. The flesh within us wars against us. It makes faith and obedience such a struggle. The agony of grief is heavier than carrying buckets of sand. Disease and loneliness empties our tank. 
wearisome and draining is this veil of tears that we call the Christian life, a bearing of the cross. Nevertheless, dear saint, God has given you a light at the end of the tunnel. Is heavenly an ideal retirement of Sabbath rest. And in the respite of the Lord that he has stored up for you, he will heal all your wounds and disabilities. The Father himself will dry your last tears. Christ will dress you in his resurrected body. In the rest of heaven, the peace and joy of holiness, being free from all sin and evil, will encompass you and will blanket all of new creation. And how is this rest yours? It is by faith alone in Christ and all of grace. Indeed, if Joshua of old didn't give Israel rest, but the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ, merited for you eternal Sabbath rest by his righteousness. Jesus won this rest for you, and all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And it is the gift of grace for you through faith. Thus, may we ever, may we never release our believing grip upon our Savior Christ. May the mercy of Jesus ever strengthen our weak faith, and may the powerful rest of God continue to energize our faith and hope. For the glories of our heavenly, for when the glories of our heavenly rest pre- preoccupy our hearts, then we realize more and more that our earthly agonies are small, that our labors are short, and that our challenges are doable compared to the never-ending bliss of God's rest won for us by Jesus. Thus, may we rejoice with complete thankfulness for the Sabbath rest of the Lord promised to us. And then let us press on in faith, giving all the glory to God now and forever. Amen. Let us pray.